0: Welcome to the Winnow Podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue: The History of American Institution, and I'm uh, Hannah
1: Raskin. Whoa, sorry, you're going to add something. I was going to say in.
0: soon to be in paperback, uh, which is uh, something announced that is coming out this fall: pe- the paperback edition of the Barbecue. History. been waiting a while for that to come well, that's out. That's exciting. So,
1: same, yeah. same cover?
0: Exactly. Well, I don't know if the cover, if they're redesigned or not. The, the contents will be the same inside, but it'll be a paperback format, huh? a little bit lower price. Yep. Uh, if anybody's gone and looked for it, they did raise the price in the hardback a while back, which... Uh, Authors never alike because we don't want people paying over 30 bucks for a book. So the uh, paperback's coming out soon. Look for that. A good chance to pick out the book if you haven't yet. So anyway, I'm Robert Ross, author of the soon-to-be-in-paperback barbecue the History of American Institution.
1: And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor of The Post and Courier, always in paper. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Always in paper, you know, sometimes feel, well, yeah. d- digital as well. Yeah. Well, today we are doing the steak and ham uh, edition of the winnow. We're going to do, talk about meats in various different formats. And we, uh, we'll, we'll start off because the, Great with the steak. Southern meats. Yes. Yep. Southern meats, which actually, uh, one of the most surprising things about your recent article about, uh, I guess you call them Japanese steakhouse, tepp- teppanyaki, if you. Want to use that term? Yeah, absolutely.
1: They. Um, it seems to be that elsewhere they tend to call it tempanyaki. In California, you would say tempanyaki. Here in the South, we tend yep. to say Japanese steakhouse or hibachi.
0: Now, I grew up in South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, and what I was surprised to to learn is that it's sort of like you, you don't learn, you don't get these things until somebody from the outside points it out. I just assumed that everywhere in the country had Japanese steakhouses, just like we have on every corner here in, in South Carolina. Certainly, I see them when I travel. I just never thought of it that much. And now I realize we're going get, well, actually, maybe not quite the concentration as we have, not just in the South, but particularly here in the Carolinas.
1: Right. So I guess we should preface what we're talking about is a story I wrote about Japanese <laughs> state right. houses in the Carolinas. Um, and, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was so interesting. The reader reaction was exactly as you would predict those living in North and South Carolina were like, I thought it was like this everywhere. (laughs) And those who were were like, are you kidding? So it was really interesting. I mean, I I, I can't tell you how many people um, north of probably around D.C. weren't even familiar with white sauce as a concept. Which –
0: Shocking, yes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, yep. I just assumed everyone would be, because it's not something that screams South Carolina or Southern to you. It's, it's it's uh, I guess, Southerners' idea of what Japanese cooking is. Um, well, but,
1: yes and no, but that's what I talked about. And the story is that they really dialed back any identifiably Japanese yep. element of this experience. So although in some ways Benihana paved the way for it, I mean, it showed that there was profit to be had in this model. And it's interesting, I was just recently talking to a couple of restaurant tours in Atlanta and they're like, there's plenty of profit to be added in that model. You know, I mean they they do not run Japanese steakhouses, but I think they would love to have a place where you just see ten people all together, no complaints, everyone's getting the same food, and you know you're gonna turn that table three times. It's I mean
0: Now I would assume that the listeners know all this, but but then being I don't want to be Carolina centric. So when we say Japanese steakhouse, what we're really talking about is where you have the sort of oval shaped Seating or oval horseshoe shaped seating around the the big griddle, correct. And everybody's sitting on stools. And on one side, the guy comes out. Chairs. With his, his, yeah, the, and
2: the, and chairs? the reason I say chairs you're right, it is chairs. Isn't I, and
1: it? I say that the reason I corrected you on that is one of the great things about Japanese steakhouses is, is right. It's great for the it's whole low. family. No, this is what you're saying no. is you can bring your grandma. You know, I mean, the chairs are comfortable. You are not at <laughs> a stool. Love it. You are not in Japanese tradition sitting anywhere near the ground. No. You're sitting in a comfortable chair.
0: Yep. And uh but the chef. Comes out with his cart and he has the big griddle and he starts cooking up and doing. Well, the, the griddle's sh- waiting for him. So well, I guess it's waiting, sitting there hot. And, yep, yep. But he does this whole whole thing. And, and uh, if you've been, and I don't I think of myself, I go go there very often, but I've been enough to know the routine and <laughs> the flaming volcano where they sort of stack the, the onion up, slice it, and then put some kind of uh, flaming liquid in it and set it on fire that's a yeah it's usually sake or vodka is it sake i Mm -hmm. always never quite knew what it was i'm guessing it's not lighter fluid right exactly (laughs) it looks like it that's a it's just like a part of part of the show so it's dinner and a show all in all in one and there is steak but there's also shrimp chicken and then lots Mm -hmm. and lots and lots of rice Right.
1: Lots of rice. Although, as I said in the story, I mean, that was the interesting thing. So I've been eating at Japanese steakhouses for 20 years. And I I, I mean, probably longer, but not that much. Because as you say, it's a really, it's a Carolinian thing. So it wasn't until I was living in Asheville that I started doing this on a regular basis. Right. So, but so it was really interesting. So in conjunction with this story, I mean, I, I, I somebody posted a comment in this story they're like I, I can't really tell if the author likes Japanese steakhouse I'm like I didn't there should be no question I love <laughs> Japanese steakhouse I mean and there have been nights where I am like working late in the newsroom on a Friday night and at nine o'clock I'm like I'll just go to a Japanese steakhouse I have cool. gone
0: alone to say, to- <laughs> that's one thing I have never done i I don't think I've ever gone in a group smaller than
1: Well, I'll tell you. I think that's when I first realized how deep the obsession was in the Carolinas. Was eating at a place in uh, in West Asheville when I lived in Asheville, and um, there was a guy at our table who was just on a business trip, and I thought. How strange, that he came here alone. And then, you know, the, as I thought about it, I thought, well, I'd like to do that too. And so we'd say, but the idea, you know, and the chef at that restaurant told me again, this is years and years ago. He's like, happens all the time. People come in alone, people come in multiple times. Um, you know, I quote folks in the story who come every week. That's not at all unusual. But, so as I said, so I eat a lot of Japanese steakhouse. I really enjoy Japanese steakhouse. But it wasn't until I headed out on my road trip for this story. um, So I worked my way up the coast, um, went up north to Wilmington. And when you cross the border, you realize it's not just rice. It's noodles up there, which to me was really surprising. Oh, I don't
0: think I've ever seen noodles no. on the, the big N- griddle.
1: Nope. Yeah, noodles on the griddle. And in fact, some people don't get rice at all. They just get the noodles. That which just is, doesn't seem right. <laughs> it doesn't seem right. And what's interesting <laughs> is we're obviously a rice culture here in the Lowcountry as well as you we go up the Grand Strand. It's all rice. And it's interesting, Western North Carolina reflects the coast, not North Carolina, because it's one of those things where mountain people have always vacationed yep. at Myrtle Beach. So they, they do all <laughs> rice up there too. See, oh, that, that's, it's that's like
0: it's a whole socio cultural <laughs> study of, of people and how they that they picked them. Now I I think it's you mentioned in the story it's obligatory to talk about Benny Handa but I think it's worth talking about cuz I, I sort of vaguely know it but it, you know how did this institution actually end up in the United States because certainly I don't think you'll go this isn't what people in Japan Japan. are doing right no
1: I think at one point and I don't know if it's still open Benihana opened in Japan I remember Benihana (laughs) came from America it's it's no different than like McDonald's opening in Japan I don't know the current state of Japanese steakhouse in Japan now but we know it's an American invention Um, it it was all part of the excitement about you know the Far East in the 1960s part of the the World's Fair excitement in New York Um, yeah it was definitely a time people
0: were dressing in kimonos and using chopsticks and anything sort of exotic that way.
1: Right. So it's important to think of it as an alcohol. Now it is a completely brand new thing, but it really has roots in the whole tiki movement, right? It was the same
0: time that Trader Vic and Don the the Beachcomber were, chugging out umbrella drinks in a totally invented Polynesian style. That, Absolutely. You
1: know, so this was this was just like that. It was taking implements that were real, a hibachi yeah. grill such a thing does exist in Japan and just putting it in a totally different <laughs> format. Um, and it was Rocky Aoki who did this and um, there have been many histories written about him because he was this incredibly flamboyant businessman. He, um, he raised the money to open his first Benihana by selling ice cream that he put those little paper parasols in, the same ones as <laughs> talk about tiki that you'd find in a really fruity drink. Uh, and he was, you know, he was just a bigger than life sort of person. Um, his idea of Benihana and his guest ideas of Benihana um, were very much about, as we already said, exoticism at the time um, and elegance um, and excellence, sure. <laughs> um, and he wasn't the only one. That's the important thing. He was successful, but Benihana was, was not it at the time there were other places in Midtown you could go to a couple uh, within a year of Benihana opening. So anyway, so the point it was it was a fancy night out um, that never really was the case for Japanese Steakhouse in the South. Instead, it was always pitched here as sort of an affordable steak dinner, mm-hmm.
0: which is very different. Well, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is because now they're all over, and there's there's seem to be tr- different. You, you see similar names like Osaka and and, and other you know, Miyabi and and mm-hmm. these. So there are certainly chains, but are they all like owned? Are they franchisees? Is, is, how is it? Do you, do that yeah, sense about so that? that's
1: interesting. Miyabi has gone, and Miyabi is currently the biggest chain uh, in the southeast. And so most places, I said in the story, where if your chef has probably done time at Miyabi at some <laughs> time, because that is the biggest chain. Um, they At one point, did have franchisees, and now have brought it back into the fold. Okay.
0: But the other thing I was curious about, because I just don't know the answer to this. I mean, clearly. You, you don't just walk in off the street and start cooking on and flipping shrimp and doing the, 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 flaming volcano and all that kind of stuff. Is it the kind of thing where people sort of, yeah, who who are the chefs? Where are they coming from? They all a- come a- from Micronesia. Micronesia.
1: Yeah. So um, this was one of the great discoveries. <laughs> I think this was in your article. <laughs> yeah. Name, I- the <laughs> owner of Miyabi made. Um, the owner of Miyabi is in fact Japanese, yeah. although he, you know, the only contribution of his heritage is that when they first opened, Miyabi is called Kyoto because that's where he was from. Um, um, but he, he has, you know, it, it does not pretend that this is a Japanese enterprise. Um, but he somehow figured out that if you go to Micronesia and recruit workers, because it, it, just like every other restaurant, uh, Japanese steak houses are always um, short staffed So they're looking for more workers. Um, and his feeling was that folks in Micronesia look, as he said, oriental. Uh, look oriental, he said. He said they're always happy. And the most important thing is they don't need a visa.
0: Uh, so that's which. Yes. Yeah. And, and when you're hiring people who are, don't live yeah. here, that, that's a big consideration. So
1: it kind of became a pipeline. Um, and like, you know, many, many other immigrant trades, once you start employing a lot of people from a country, uh, their brothers and cousins uh, soon follow. So it, it's I mean, almost 99.9 percent chance if you go to a Japanese steakhouse, the person waiting on your micronesian is micronesian. Okay.
0: Yep. See, I know they. I, I could tell they weren't Japanese. At not least, Japanese. not most of the restaurants I've, I've been to. Right. But I couldn't quite place you know, where where the chefs right. came from. I
1: mean, this is not. I mean, this is not a country that's had massive yep. immigration to, to this country, and so it's not really a culture we know incredibly well. And and same in both directions. So um, they there's really not a culture of eating steak, let alone preparing <laughs> it in Micronesia. So this was you know they had to do a lot of training, um, which of course, as I said in the story, I mean, it's just it's not part of the their regular yeah. diet um but yeah but now that's that's the core of their labor force such an
0: interesting phenomenon right you know like uh, it's amazing yeah, yeah. it's it amazing
1: away. you think about just immigration and ethnicity and 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 you know economics sorry go ahead well let's talk about white
0: sauce while yeah. we're in that because that's the other thing that yeah you know, we talk about rice you gotta have steak you gotta right. have shrimp and, and chicken But you got to have the white sauce. What is is in the white
2: sauce? So
1: Mr. Maeda, owner of Miyabi, um, claims that he uh, invented white sauce. And interestingly, there aren't too many counterclaims that I can find. I I think he probably did invent white sauce, or at least the Miyabi chain did. I think that's a pretty persuasive argument. Um, It is based off Kewpie mayonnaise, which is a mayonnaise familiar to a lot of chefs or folks who shop in Asian markets. It's a heavier, thicker, sweeter Japanese mayonnaise. So ironically, it's actually the most Japanese part of hmm. anything in a Japanese steakhouse or at least it was to start with. That's sort of where they started as the base. They uh, called up their food distributor. It, it is interesting as I wrote, um, Japanese steakhouses then and now, although they want to be seen as very affordable and indeed they are, they take a tremendous amount of pride in house-made sauces. I didn't notice,
0: yeah, they, uh the guy your interview. he's like, everything's made in-house. They make my own mustard th- sauce, make my own white it, sauce. It's all...
1: All the ginger sauce, oh, they all make it in-house because I spent a fair amount of time trying to try crack down, gosh, who's making the white sauce for all these, you know, all these steakhouses. And I couldn't find any distributor who could help me because they really are making mm. in-house. Um, partly because it's not that hard to make. All you need is a big vat of mayonnaise and a whole lot of sugar um, and ketchup to give it a little bit of a pink tint. So that's what white sauce is.
0: So the ketchup is, makes because they also call it shrimp sauce. Shrimp sauce. So In North little...
1: Carolina, they sometimes call it shrimp sauce and they even sometimes call it pink sauce. Pink sauce. Yum yum sauce is also kind of a, a scattered term for it. <laughs>
0: So whether the Japanese steakhouses that was one thing your article left me because yes. it looks like, you know, there are some towns inside you. I think you found a town that had exactly two restaurants, one of which was a Japanese <laughs> restaurant.
1: That was such good luck. Yeah. That was real, like, boots on the ground reporting. I had no idea I was going to find that. And I really just pulled through a two-lane, you know, a two-lane highway through this little town, and I could not believe it. That
0: it sounds like the the fast casual trend is sort of moving into the Japanese steakhouse yep. as well, where fewer and fewer people want to go sit down and have the full, you know, get the whole family around the the, the big uh, rectangular yep. griddle table, but they're actually getting takeout and getting the, the white sauce to go. They're not giving up on their white
1: sauce. So I mean, the reason I'd always wanted to write this story, and I wanted to write it for so long, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself now because this has always been like the dream story. And as I've written it, I, I just have no purpose in life. Um, but that aside, uh, so white sauce has always brought people together. And so the reason I was first interested in this story is because it's striking to me as someone who eats out professionally on a regular basis to see that many interracial tables um, mm-hmm. and these groups don't come together I mean sometimes they do sometimes it's like the office goes out and you're going to have a mixed group
0: like 12 around the table uh, or yeah, something you fit, so you're, yeah. usually it's two different parties together two or three or three if it's like you know three parties nights, four. date yeah.
1: night it, it can be I'm, as I said in the story often it's a real comfortable place for two guys to go because mm-hmm. they can sit side by side and in the south if you don't drink and there are many in the south who don't drink and again going back to western North Carolina it has a very Christian element yeah. as it does yeah, other west
0: you go in the Carolinas, the drier it gets. Yeah, the
1: drier it gets. And so you may not go to a bar, you know, if you're in the upstate, but you may go with your buddy to a Japanese steakhouse. Anyways, that aside, so you can find anyone around yeah. the table, but you find them all together. And that to me was, re- it's really unusual. It's undutiable. definitely a
0: communal dining experience that like some other types of experience, bars are this way, but barbecue joints can be this way or, or anywhere where you sit at community tables, mm-hmm. you're sort of, you, you, you're You. natural to strike up a conversation, but particularly with uh, the show going on where things are getting flipped and there's a little bit of interaction right. between people. So it sort of draws you in. So it's a way of... Yeah, not just and, getting a meal, but, but and talking so to people. In,
1: in the case of Miyabi, that was not left up to chance. I was really interested in Mr. Maida was talking about they had this strategy at the beginning when people weren't really sure about mixing. In you know, other this is in the late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, these were strangers and they weren't accustomed to all being together. And so what they would do, we already mentioned how much rice they would serve. They take this huge amount of rice <laughs> and, and they would serve some to a man at one side of the table and say, well, that comes from the man at the other side of the table. It's like, I think when parents have like... <laughs> like a new baby and they want to be like, yep. you know, like, they're like, Oh, you know, just be friends. You know? So they say, this comes right. They say, say, thank you. And so one stranger would say, thank you. So to they the were other,
0: actively getting people to, actively, to talk.
1: actively making sure that they were, you know, appreciating and enjoying one another, which is terrific. And so that's the reason I was interested in this. And that's the reason that I'm worried for the future of Japanese steakhouse because now people, as you say, can get their white sauce
0: in these, Fast food environment. I could not even fathom going again takeout. For, that was something that would never cross my mind because it's it's not about getting the rice and the steak. It's about sitting around the big uh, the big table, watching the show, and you know having the kids there. It's it's much better if you have kids who who yeah. really get excited about yeah, you know, knives well, and, it, and fire it, and it, things it, like that.
1: Okay, so the watching the show. It's really <laughs> as I said in the story. So the problem is now. Everyone on YouTube is doing it better than yeah. the guy in front of you. And the chefs say that they think those guys on YouTube aren't even using sharp knives. <laughs> you know, they're doing 14 takes. And it's like nobody catches the shrimp in his hat every time. But you get on YouTube and you think they do. And, it, you know, as, as the chefs were telling me this, I kept thinking about you hear it's so hard for, like, young women in the dating world today because there's, like, so much porn online. You know, oh, they're okay. like, it's not real. And that's <laughs> kind of what these chefs are dealing with where it's like – that's not really how it is, oh,
0: man. Yeah, I and yeah, just about ruins that part. everything. Yeah, YouTube's just crushing everything. a well, social yeah, media I mean, just, again? Well, yeah, it just it creates
1: you know it, uh, these unfulfilled expectations, um, and so you know where it got to the point where I was at a steakhouse in Florence, and the guys like watching a, a chef on his phone <laughs> when there's a chef right in front of him. So you know the demand for this kind of entertainment, the interest in this entertainment, and possibly the patience for this entertainment uh, is really fading. But the white ho- white sauce passion is unabated. And And so, again, because of that, this fast food model where you just run in and get it to go – Seems to be catching on.
0: The death of civilization. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I think
1: that moment of silence is warranted. It's uh, it's it's a sad, sad situation. Well,
0: I I trust with Myrtle Beach and and such uh, places to continue to draw crowds down to the shore. We'll continue. I, you know, with, I would hope so. Statehouse. And actually, that
1: brings up an interesting point that that you may want to weigh in as a longer term South Carolinian than I am. Um, I got an email from a reader who said he has long had the theory that the popularity of hibachi wiped out the calabash in a uh, buffet, excuse me, it's mm-hmm. particularly not just the idea of frying fish like they do, but that the seafood buffet used to be where you had to go in Myrtle Beach, and now it's been displaced by Japanese Steakhouse. It's
0: definitely not that case in Myrtle Beach. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Myrtle Beach was always where you would go and, and go to these seafood. And it was always, thinking back, it was always these places with all-you-can-eat Alaskan snow crab That's legs, yep. which always just just bothered the hell right. out of me because <laughs> yeah. people are coming all the way from Michigan or somewhere, the Emerald Beach and order crab legs that are shipped in frozen from Alaska because you can't get snow crab legs right, which off are the weird, coast of South Carolina.
1: Which come from nearer Japan than anything yeah. in a Japanese <laughs> steakhouse. <laughs> so, but, way off the coast. Yeah.
0: And it was always about all you could eat snow crab yep. legs and with the, the melted butter or drawn butter as we call it in South Carolina and it was yep. all about all you could eat and it's keep bringing them and keep bringing them but the thing about it is after you've eaten a dozen crab legs mm-hmm. sort of dunked in butter. Yeah, you're in a lot of butter. Yeah, you're, you're starting to hurt. Yeah. <laughs> oh, know, absolutely. It, you know, it's it definitely like Diminishing returns on the all-you-can-eat it, crab. Sure, legs. and
1: to be fair, butter is a huge part of hibachi as well. Yes. I mean, you've, you've probably seen them set up the grill. I mean, it's a huge amount of butter. As I said in the story, it, it is you know Google searches for Japanese steakhouse correlate scarily with stomach pain, like because <laughs> you you eat way too much rice and it yeah, has a lot, lot of, butter of butter on it. So I, I'm not saying that this was necessarily a move for good health or anything um, in terms of the, of the seafood buffet, but I do think it's interesting um, that there was something before Japanese steakhouse, and I think it's a good hypothesis. Yeah, that
0: there, was, and you've read about Calabash, yeah. which and and I I grew up going to the beach mm-hmm. right next to Calabash, and yep. so going out to those uh,
2: all you well, was, no most all of you could it like be plate. Yeah, it's just yeah it's just yeah.
0: fried seafood, but it, originally it was. It was shrimp caught right there off the Carolina coast, right. but then over time, you know, it's now they're serving a lot of, not all of them, but some of them are starting to serve a lot of imported shrimp, and sure. you start getting the all-you-can-eat places where they're just throwing the cheap stuff at you. Then the crab legs came in, and I guess then, I didn't think about it, but the Japanese steakhouses must put a pretty good-sized dent into that Has that market be. because Has there's so be. many of them yep. all over the Grand Strand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, as long as YouTube doesn't completely crush—the the <laughs> notion of somebody sitting at that table watching another chef on YouTube is, like, one of the most
2: sad, saddest <laughs> things
1: I've in a long time. It really is. Um, so, but it was, it was great to write this story, and it was great to just, you know, bring attention to Japanese Steakhouse because I think exactly as you said, at the outset, it's one of those things you don't really think about. No. Um, so it was nice to have this opportunity to celebrate something that's really worth celebrating.
0: If you're in the Carolinas— you owe it to yourself to sample our special local specialties yes. at the Japanese takeouts. No,
1: absolutely. I mean, I don't think northerners would think to do that, I right? think a,
2: no visit to the Grand Strand would be complete without uh, a little teppanyaki show. Amen. I actually went to Miyabi this weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did, I did notice that on your—, yeah. uh, your uh... Twitter
1: fan, I, and I, Emery. I want to hear all about your experience. Yeah. First of all, was it filled with posting Courier readers? Because everyone was like, damn, oh, that "I have a taste." Oh, I work. don't know. It was packed. Yeah. Okay. I mean,
2: it's, you, it's you, Hanna, you may have single handedly given I, like I a boost to, to the
0: Miyabi chain.
2: <laughs> Tell me all about it. Um. Yeah. So I eat a lot of takeout hibachi. Mm-hmm. Um. I Where just, do you get it? Uh, let's see. Probably split between Mama Kim's and Great Wall. Great. Downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, so I really like it. Mm-hmm. I like white sauce. I, you know, uh, the thing that impressed me a lot about Miyabi is I, I haven't been, I used to go a lot. Like, that used to be the, the um, like, annual thing we'd do for my birthday, like, up in Greenville is go to, like, Can Pie, which is just another chain up there. I forgot how much better it is than The Takeaway. Um, Thank you. It, it, like, it really, like... Honestly, the the steak I got this weekend was like really good. It it's was, really one of, one of the better steaks I've had.
1: It's really good. I mean, Miyabi ages its steaks. Yeah. It takes really good care of its steaks. I, again, I have to put it in words. I did in the story for Heroes in Wilmington is like incredibly good. And I yeah. ate a lot of steak. And I ate in a lot of nice restaurants.
2: And it's like, this is really good beef. Yeah, even for the for the price for the price, yeah.
1: it's crazy. Yeah, yeah,
2: but it's Re- really, good. Really, yeah. really really good. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that I think really left an impression on me. I, I, um, I, I went with a group of friends, and, and our decision walking out of it was like, none of us, basically, none of us had gone since maybe, you know, high school <laughs> around yeah. around that age, and our our conclusion was like, we need to do this more often.
1: That's right. Yeah. No, that's- exactly yeah. right. Like, it, first off, it just brings happiness. Like, you're not— And you we know. had
0: that—yeah, I had that exact same gap. and Because yep. that's something I—once I, I got out and on my own, I stopped going. Because we used to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. We, we sort of we went for—somebody would want to go there for their birthday. Right. You know, guaranteed. Um, and then it wasn't until I had kids again. And then we started going. But not just with the family, though. Sometimes we would if we, you know, just needed, needed a— the dinner out but often we'd to like some friends in the neighborhood we'd say hey let's just meet up at the yeah. uh i can't remember the one it may be a it maybe it may the one up up in mount pleasant mm-hmm. um and it was just a a great place to get together everyone no matter how picky our kids are we'll eat Everyone will have a good time. Right. The adults can have a, a grown-up beverage. Yep. The kids get a show. You know, and so we, it, yeah, we the same thing. We all do this more often. And, exactly. and so we Exactly.
1: Yep. Mm. Yeah. No, it's great, and it's um. Since the story came out, I've had so many friends text me <laughs> and be like, "Well, now I want to go." So I think I'm going to be going about twenty times. <laughs> yeah, over every time the next someone month. goes to visit, yeah. they're going to have to come. Yep. Exactly.
0: Uh, go check
2: out this, this. The the other thing I forgot, and I, don't for, I don't. I'm not sure if you mentioned this in in the article. Um, I completely forgot about the rainbow sherbet at the end.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did mention it. I oh, called okay, it good. orange yeah. sherbet though, orange, because yeah. yeah, this may be another Carolinian difference that I didn't investigate. I'm accustomed to orange, but th- yeah. they brought you rainbow. Well, they
2: brought yeah, they brought us rainbow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think. Mm-hmm. See, so, so your your so your rainbow career rainbow. is not over. No. <laughs> you have more
0: more research to do <laughs> back on the sherbet <laughs> beat. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think that part's great too. It's it's all, yeah. The ritual of it is really is really lovely. I. I'm, mm-hmm and yeah and so that's I've had to explain it's like I am I unironically love Japanese steakhouse (laughs) it's nothing you know it was fun this past weekend I got a chance to host we had a hibachi dinner at the Atlanta Wine and Food Festival that they were very kind to. I was like I got this idea Um, and so we had these three chefs come in with rolling hibachi grills um, and do their take you know which was really fancy I mean were these
0: Japanese steakhouse chefs or or no 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 these were these
1: were festival fine dining chefs so sort of like
0: the version that the, you know, the Charleston wine and food does that's the, the waffle right. house. So this that's is exactly right. That's, is, uh, ex- that's
1: exactly Atlanta what we did. Yes. So person. it was kind of like chef's take yeah. on, um, what did they do? And it was great. I mean, they were really, everyone had their own white sauce. Yeah. So it, we, I had the chance of white sauce with activated charcoal, which isn't very white, but it was, uh, you know, <laughs> someone made it more of like a hot sauce flying up the pink part. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, it, it's, what's interesting is it's really the the the, the structure was kind of unchanged. I mean, people seem to still like like corny jokes, and they still <laughs> like the fire. All that really worked. Like, yes, when they gave you your steak, they're like, "Oh, can I shave some black truffles on that?" You know, and that was very nice. But it was really just the fun of sitting around. Did and they shave and a the black chef.
0: truffle into his hat or like across the? It,
1: there yeah. was that they didn't throw a lot of things. <laughs> <Like, laughs> you know, they were on a tight budget, yeah. but but not so tight that when they cleared the grill, they weren't like, uh, guys like, uh, anyone want soft-shell crab? Yeah. Which doesn't usually happen at Miyabi. Uh, so it, it was a lot of fun. The
2: other thing I, I, lo- I loved about it is um, from far away, the building, the architecture, it looks Japanese. It's it's meant to look like a Japanese right. building, like you know the traditional wooden architecture. And you get up close and you realize the whole thing is painted stucco. And right. you're like, how perfect is that to symbolize something that looks Japanese, but you get up close, and really it's, it's very southern, you know? <laughs> it's
1: very southern, yeah. yeah.
2: And the Miami is beautiful. It's
1: got mm-hmm. the, the ceiling inside. Oh, yeah, the, the, the bar area
2: was was really yeah. overwhelming when I walked in there. I had I had never seen something quite like that before.
1: Yeah, it was great. They, uh, they've just kind of redone that area, and that's part of that's the sushi mm-hmm. bar. And so when I interviewed Mr. Maida. I mean, we we're like, you know, a good hour in talking about hibachi, and he said, have you ever heard of sushi? He like, really wanted to talk about sushi. That would have been funny if I hadn't. I was like, no, tell me about this thing. <laughs> I have to
0: admit, I always found it strange because a lot of places I go would have sushi yep. as well. It seemed like it was uh, almost like, don't bring your sushi into the, the steakhouse, but I guess it fits. He says it's but. been
1: successful. I think um, customers need something to do while they're waiting for a table, yeah. you know, so they're at the bar and they, you know, they might get of And a little certainly hungry.
0: that's something that's changed in the South because 20 years ago, nobody in the South would touch raw fish. I mean, right, was just exactly. So when of. they
1: introduced it at Miami for like the first year or whatever, you would just get, they brought around complimentary rolls yeah.
0: just to hook people on it because nobody was ordering <laughs> it. So. Yeah, I still remember, I mean, I was in graduate school before Mm-hmm. you know yeah really sushi became something that you could oh, even get I or at least that say. people call. I don't know I'm trying to know they're probably sure there were sushi restaurants but no one I knew ever went to them it wasn't until I really wasn't. Right. in graduate school was the first time that we was, started doing it. right doing I mean that. it was
1: pretty new for the whole country in the 80s yeah. right I mean I, I didn't have it till I went to college yeah.
0: so certainly yeah. so did not have it growing up yeah. <laughs> it was not no new
1: no definitely not <laughs>
0: Okay, so up next, we promised steak and ham, so we got to talk about uh, ham as well. And this is another—this is something I've been working on. Uh, Just recently, I did an article for a magazine called Early American Life, which uh, is print-only, so you you can't get these online. Uh, Old-school magazine, Um, but it really is devoted to really food—or actually culture in general, American history before— 1830 or 1840 or so, which I, I enjoy writing for them because it puts me back at a different time and it and, and, and really gets me thinking. But the editor has asked me to do a piece on Country Ham and I thought it was funny because they, they I talked to them first on the phone and clearly the edit, this, that is it's published out of Cleveland, Ohio, had really no idea what Country Ham was. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of sort of No one knows where a Japanese steakhouse is. Uh, They literally don't – they really didn't know much at all about country ham. And so as they usually do when I do an assignment for them, they'll they'll say, well, here's the kind of things, questions we have about this topic. And theirs were – usually they're very pointed. Theirs were more like, what is country ham? What makes it different (laughs) from regular ham? Is it the way it's cooked? And so I I dug into it. And and I ended up writing that basically – it's it's sort of asking the wrong question. It, it's because country ham originally, and certainly before 1830, was just ham.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there was there was yeah, no because well,
1: everyone lived in the country. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and not only that, but the way they you know yeah. the way they prepared ham today, country the good country hams today, like you know, Benton's country hams from Tennessee and Edwards country hams from up in Surrey, Virginia. Uh, those are all made with the traditional methods that would have been used back in the beginning, of the, 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 back in the 18th century.
1: Well, now I guess you got to clear something up for me. Yep. So now city ham, does it actually— Actually, have sugar
0: added? Ah, good question. That that is true. That it, indeed it does. In mm-hmm. fact, um, this is something that I never saw. I've, I've seen people write about uh, country ham and city ham, and sort of the transition from one to the other, mm-hmm. which I wrote about. But I have a theory on that uh, on how that that first came about, mm-hmm. um, which is. And it involves sugar. Sugar is actually sort of the, the key difference what, yeah. between a country ham and a city ham. Um, interestingly enough, people have been curing ham anywhere there's been pork for centuries and centuries, uh, from England all the way to, to China. So China has China has a long-standing ham-making tradition. But in most places, it's it's salt cured but it's an air dried. It's not smoked. Mm -hmm. That's actually a big difference between American country ham and other types of of ham. So certainly the English... I didn't know any of this since I started the research, but archaeologists have not found evidence of smokehouses on, you know, English farms and and, and estates and, and all that. There is a, obviously a, a long tradition of smoking meats in in Germany uh, and Holland, so in, in those areas. But it was not part of the English food waste tradition. But it quickly became a part of the English colonists' food waste tradition once they arrived in Virginia and realized that their traditional way of uh, you know, taking a ham and preserving with salt, uh, it would still go bad in the hot climate. It, it wouldn't last, and it's not exactly clear, but I'm pretty I'm pretty confident that they learned that they borrowed a lot of the smoking techniques from the Native Americans uh, because the various tribes of the Powhatan and the Algonquins all would preserve fish and things uh, by smoking it over meat. And so very, very early on, Virginians were, were starting to procure their, their hams and other types of pork and meat uh, through smoking. And that was actually the way country ham originated or, or ham originated. It was a way of, at hog killing time, you would uh, render the lard into fat. You'd use the blood for blood pudding. You would— uh, you know, used entrails for various things because they ate every piece of it. Uh, the the uh, ribs and uh, the tenderloin were actually eaten fresh. And then all the big cuts, the hams, the shoulders, and then the side meat, what we call bacon today, would be hung in the smokehouse. Well, they'd be salted, allowed to cure, and then hung in the smokehouse and dosed with smoke and then kept in the smokehouse year-round because it was almost sort of a refrigerator. They'd every now and again get a fire going again because there was no refrigeration, so it was a way of, of preserving it. And that early on was what ham was. Early in the 19th century, the or actually as late as the 1780s, 1790s, Virginia started exporting their hams to the Caribbean, uh, all up and down the the, the the coast, and then eventually all the way to England. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, 1810s, 1820s, we started importing Westphalia ham uh, from Westphalia, the, the region in Germany, which was one of the places, curiously enough, that smoked their hams as well. And Thomas Jefferson, in fact, when he was uh, the minister of France, Tour through Westphalia and noticed them smoking hams. And he said, "Here they think they're the only place in the world that smokes ham. They don't know that we do it in Virginia." Oh, so Westphalia and Virginia were the two mm. prized hams in the early part of the 19th century. Mm. And then along comes sugar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, I have to—I haven't tried Westphalia hams since I, I wrote this article, and I, but I assume it's still made by the similar old methods. But one of the things that was smoked over juniper and beechwood, whereas in Virginia mm. they smoked their hams over uh, hickory almost exclusively. So I think it would have a sweeter flavor. Right. Like so many things in the 19th century, like whiskey, uh, like cream cheese, I, I, my, it's my contention that American ham, as we think of it today, city ham, evolved at, out of as a way to imitate the expensive imported Westphalia ham. In Mm -hmm. fact, you can find ads early on for sugar-cured ham, imitation of, and some would say, and superior to the finest Westphalia. Mm. And a guy named Charles Duffield, who established Duffield's Hams in Cincinnati, he got started making imitation uh, Westphalia ham Mm. and marketing as such. And the big difference was that it would be Mm wet-cured and it would be sugar-cured. So what they would actually do is make what they call a pickle uh, so in, in the Virginia tradition, you'd be rubbing the hams with salt and then letting them air dry, maybe using a little saltpeter uh, as extra preservative, and then they would later put black pepper on it to keep the, the flies off. But that would be it. It'd be dry cured and then allowed to hang. Uh, in the newer hams, they would pack them in these tubs and then make a brine solution with a lot of either brown sugar or molasses mm-hmm. and then pour them over the, the hams and let them pickle mm-hmm. basically in there for a, a long time before taking them out, drying them off, and then smoking them. And so that was uh, originally an imitation of West, Westphalian ham, and it was sold as such until much later in the 19th century when food labeling laws prevented them from doing that. It had to be called Westphalia style ham or imitation style ham. But as the uh, pork industry grew and grew and grew, that's how um, you, it went from being, the, the, what we think of as country ham as being the main kind of ham, Right. To city cured ham being predominant on the market because it was a lot cheaper.
1: Right, you're saying. I imagine that has to do with the availability of sugar. I mean, in the 18th yep. century, you were that, not. That's uh, true as well.
0: Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't have had a whole bunch of sugar out on the farm mm-hmm. somewhere in, in Virginia yep. in the 18th century. If you did, it was very expensive. You wouldn't be, you know, rubbing it all over your, your ham. <laughs> you know, especially when you have perfectly good yeah. country ham. Uh. Right, but it wasn't called country ham until really it started being distinguished when city ham started sort of coming around and mm-hmm. Westphalia ham. So you see these ads that has either city-cured or sugar-cured, Westphalia and country ham Mm -hmm. to to distinguish it from that. And then over the course of the 19th century, it flipped so that almost all ham was— was right. city-cured, and, 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 and less and less was cured the old way.
1: By the 20th century, people wanted sweet ham. I mean, isn't that where, like, honey—what's the, the big Honey-baked honey, ham. Honey-baked yep. ham, right? The idea that you'd want a honey-baked ham. I mean, I don't know the history of that company, but— I, I don't either,
0: but the the distinctive thing about it is that you have this very sweet glaze on mm-hmm. the top. And so, you know, honey-baked—I I only assume they drizzle it in honey before they basic right. bake it. Now, with a country ham, and it's still true today as it was, you know, 200 years ago, if you just take a country ham out of the smokehouse and bake it, you're mm. going to have like a dry, salty just terrible mouthful. Right. So you actually actually soak it overnight and then boil it. Mm. And I think it's like 30 you boil it 30 minutes per pound. So you could boil this thing for hours and hours mm. on end and so you really cook it first through boiling. And then the way they would finish it would be they could call toast it, toasted, which would they would basically cover with breadcrumbs and then put it in a hot oven to, to finish. Yeah. Uh, but no mention of sweet glazes or anything like that. It yeah, was not I, a sweet product. No, I
1: don't know enough about it. Yeah, I just know when I was a little girl, we used to have just like a slice yep. of it. It must have been that honey-baked ham or an imitation, you know, just so sweet. I just remember it would just glisten on those edges. Well, know? and the
2: salad,
0: Coca-Cola hams right. are, are that's, still that's, yeah. quite common where you just you pour Coca-Cola over right. the top of the ham before right. you bake it. Yep. You really can't do that with a country ham, at least not until you've soaked it or not being good. But if you buy one of the... Uh, spiral cut or those, those big hams. Yeah, you can certainly do that. And I, said, I mean, because
1: obviously sweet and pork go together a lot of places yep. in American food, and obviously barbecue sauce is often pretty sweet itself. You know, I mean, there's a lot of sweet, but, but it does seem like there isn't much of an old country inspiration for that. Like, I don't remember ever biting into a German sausage and thinking Mm-mm. like, oh, I'll take a cup of coffee with that. Sugar. Yeah,
0: sweetness was really a phenomenon of the 20th century yeah. when sugar became available. I've written about sweet tea. Mm-hmm. No one was really, well, to the extent people were drinking tea, they were drinking it hot, not very sweet, and it really you know, it didn't become omnipresent. Right. It, it, it was common in the South in the 20th century, but omnipresent by the late 20th century, mm-hmm. and our diets just have gone steadily sweeter and sweeter yeah, and sweeter, and sweeter in the South over the last 100 years. But yeah, if you ever had it like you've got a husk bar or somewhere like that where they have the big old joint of country ham up there and they just shave it off, it's so wonderful. It's just salty yeah, and it's and rich. I, I, it, and is,
1: it is all of those things. And although yeah. I feel like I'm some being somewhat derisive about the sugar in the ham, if you have a country ham and an old fashioned, it's actually, yes. it actually goes together. A, well. that, that is a
0: good combination. Yes. You want a little sweetness. Yeah, but, exactly. But it doesn't need to come like radiating right. out, of the, out of the ham. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you can get it from somewhere else. Yep. Put it all together, Japanese steak and country ham. If, if we could somehow combine those in a restaurant, that would be the most Southern thing ever.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll get to work o- on too that. Overwhelming.
1: Overwhelming. <laughs> and that is all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the... Uh, Communal. Ah! Okay. <laughs> we record today's episode in the communal podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoyed listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the.
0: White sauce loving.
1: J.M. Ray Parker. True. Our theme music is by the <laughs> Bluestone Ramblers.
0: Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.